If you take your Bible, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. We'll get there in just a few moments. The story goes that a pastor was teaching a Sunday school class, and he was going over the various interpretations of Matthew 16, 18, where it says that Jesus says, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And he talked about all the different interpretations from a Roman Catholic standpoint, Protestant, and all these things. And a woman raised her hand and said after that, she said, you know, Pastor, if Jesus had known all the trouble those words would have made, he probably wouldn't have said them, would he? You know, as we think about the passage we're about to look at today, some scholars believe this is the most difficult section of Scripture in the New Testament for us to interpret and understand. And I'm sure when Peter wrote this, he had no idea that it would be classified as so. In fact, it's interesting that there's all kinds of scholars you can read about. There's good debate, there's good interpretations, but not a lot of answers. But what we want to look at today as we go through this, and we don't avoid the most difficult parts of Scripture. We look at them and we interpret them to the best of our ability, but we want to look at the applications from it and what we can learn from the scriptures in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Last week, we talked about having a clear conscience and what a pure conscience looked like. We talked about that uh, definition from John MacArthur, how all people are born with this sense of right and wrong. There's something that works in our lives, and when we do something wrong, it convicts us. When we do things right, it affirms it, and it's something that's innate within all human beings to begin with. And then we also talked about the benefits of a pure conscience. And today we're going to talk about the blessings, the blessing found in having a clear conscience, the work that was done in order for us to have the ability to have a clear conscience. And I hope you don't take that opportunity to have a clear conscience lightly. As we'll see in a few moments, there's many people in this world who would give anything to have the guilt and the shame removed from their lives and have the assurance that they know Christ as Savior and have that peace that passes all understanding. In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 18, Peter said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, who is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. First thing we see on your outline to illustrate the work Christ did on our behalf is this. Christ's power over sin allows Christ followers to have a clear conscience. The blank there is power. Christ's power over sin allows Christ followers to have a clear conscience. Look back at verse 18 we just read. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Notice the words for and also at the beginning of verse 18. 
What he's about to say refers back to what we looked at last week, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. The overarching thought here is that we should not be surprised or get discouraged about our suffering because in the end, when it's all said and done, Christ wins and so do we as believers in Christ. So we're going to look at some doctrinal things and we're going to describe them and then we're going to apply them to our lives. The first big word we're going to look at is that Christ is our propitiation for sin. Christ is our propitiation for sin. Propitiation means that Jesus paid the debt of our sin. A debt that you and I, if we had 10 lifetimes to live for God, we could never, ever repay. You see, Jesus shed blood covering all the sins of our lives allows God to see us clean in his sight. The words for and sin in that verse were used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament as words meaning in place of or instead of. This shows the substitutionary nature of Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. That Jesus went to the cross and when he nailed his hands and his feet to the cross, he took your place and my place. God placed all the sins of the world upon him and he paid for the wrath of God. And he took our place. It would be just like if we were on death row and we were facing execution and Jesus were to come in and say, I will go to the electric chair. I'll, I'll take the injections for you and you go free. Jesus did that for us so that we would not have to suffer in eternity separated from God in hell. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He imputed his righteousness to us by dying on the cross and taking our place and paying for our sin. Jesus was the substitute for our sin. And notice in verse 18, he took our place on the cross to pay that penalty. And Jesus died once for our sins. That is significant. He was the final sacrifice for our sins. In my devotions, I'm reading through the Bible. And currently part of my reading, I'm in the book of Leviticus. And it gets into the all the little intimate details of how a husband was to bring an offering to the temple each week to pay for his sins and the sins of his family. And he was part of the process of cutting the neck and draining the blood and giving it to the priest. And then it goes into all the detail of how the process of going through to get forgiveness of sin. Think about all that happens. But then Jesus... Jesus was the one who came and was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God and was the final sacrifice once and for all. His death was sufficient to satisfy the anger of God and no amount of good works or acts of righteousness on our part would wipe the slate of our sin clean. His death was enough to satisfy God. Jesus considered the Lamb of God was that final sacrifice on the cross and when he said those words, to telestai, it is finished, it literally meant, it's an accounting term, paid in full. Jesus paid it all. And then he died and he was buried and he rose again. Romans chapter, eight, or Romans chapter 6 says this, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all once for all verse 10 but the life he lives he lives to God 
in our minds, it means that it was enough. No matter what we've done in our lives, the grace of God and the blood of Jesus will get under that and bring you up and forgive you of your sin. He's our propitiation. He's our substitute. But second of all, under there, this main point, Christ is our redeemer, our redeemer, our redeemer from sin. We see in verse 18 that Jesus is the one who bought us back from the kingdom of darkness with his payment for our sins so that we now belong to God. The righteous for the unrighteous, it says there, the just for the unjust. In Romans 10, 13, it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Romans 3:10, as is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Jesus' sinless life provoked the unjust hostilities of evil men. It led them to putting Jesus to death in his flesh, in his physical body, it means there. When it talks about death, it means a violent death in the Greek. The death, the humiliation, the shame, the torture of the cross. Christ makes it possible for us to be justified. Another, another word of doctrine, justified in God's sight. Part of bringing us to God, as it says in this verse, is that we are justified in God's sight. Justification, as I learned when I was uh, in college and Bible school, it means that God looks at us when we come and confess our sin and repent, that God looks at us as if, just as if we've never sinned. It's like taking a white erase board and just taking all the sins and wiping it clean. And that's how he looks at us. We place our confidence and faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross and subsequently his resurrection. Here's some other ancillary thoughts on verse 18 of 1 Peter 3. Jesus died keeping his conscience clear. Think about that. Jesus died keeping his conscience clear in 1 Peter 2.23, earlier in this book. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was made alive in his human spirit in 1 Peter 3.18, the second part of that verse, but made alive in the spirit. There's a debate among theologians if this is a reference to the Holy Spirit raising Jesus from the dead and to continue to able, enable him in verse 19 and 20 to proclaim the victory, or if this is his human living spirit and that his eternal spirit that was live while his physical body was dead and in the grave continued on. The Greek here points to the fact that it's his human spirit, his physical body that's described here in verse 18. Jesus willingly laid down his life, but it was God who physically raised him up from the grave. Notice Peter uses the words to bring us to God. To bring us to God. That literally means to gain an audience in the court of someone famous. To bring us to God in this case. Someone who is famous, someone who is amazing. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It also is speaking not just about salvation, but God taking care of our daily needs as we come to him with our daily prayer requests and the needs that we face throughout the day. Part of that bringing us to God is that we now gain access to God on his throne in heaven because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said it is finished and died, one of the things that happened was a great earthquake occurred. And then it says that, that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, what was significant about that? Well, the, the temple had a place called the Holy of Holies. 
And only the high priest could go in once a year on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice for the nation to give forgiveness of sin for Israel. Well now, and it's interesting, theologians have said if it was a human thing, it would have been torn from the bottom to the top because our first reaction tearing something is to grab the bottom and tear it to the top. But this is top to bottom, that God is tearing it down, separate, that no longer there's a separation between us and God, that we don't need a human mediator to go to him. We no longer need a human priest because as we'll see in a few moments, that Jesus is our high priest in heaven, seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus paid it all and the work is done. So when you think of verse 18 of 1 Peter 3, one commentator stated it this way, that this verse is one of the shortest and simplest and yet one of the richest summaries given in the New Testament about the meaning of the cross of Jesus. All these things that we just described are packed into that verse. It's the work that Jesus did for us on the cross that allows us to apply daily, being forgiven of our sin and being seen as righteous in God's sight that encourages us to walk in the Holy Spirit's leading and to be grateful and thankful and so appreciative for our salvation. As I was reading in my devotions this week, there's a passage, several passages in the book of Daniel. And every time this angel, Gabriel, comes to Daniel on three occasions, part of what he says to Daniel is this, you are greatly loved, you are greatly loved, you are greatly loved. In Ephesians chapter 2, after uh, Paul talks about all the sons and disobedience and the sin, and then God's great mercy, he talks about the only place in the New Testament that says this word, God's great love for us. I hope today that you ponder, that you dwell, that you're not just loved, but you're greatly loved, greatly loved by the Father, that he accepts you and he loves you just as you are as a practical way for us to apply this to our lives. You see on the screen, John 3.16 with some blanks in it. Next slide, there we go. And I want you to take a moment as we recite this verse together, I want you to put your name in there and remind yourself of how much God loves you. Let's say this together. For God so loved Ed that he gave his only son that if Ed believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. You have eternal life, you, because you are greatly loved by God and all this work that he did for you. So here's our application. May we carry out, may we carry out these doctrines to our personal lives as Christ followers, that they wouldn't just be words, propitiation and substitutionary death and justification, but think about let it pour into your soul what that means, that the living God has, has given you the opportunity to have a clear conscience in relationship with him because of all he's done for you. Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus shares the power of overcoming sin, death, and the devil. The second main point here is Christ proclaimed victory over sin that allows Christ followers to have a clear conscience. Jesus declares victory. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 through the first part of verse 20, in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. Notice those words in which, in this verse. 
I believe it was the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was able to proclaim his victory over Satan, over his fallen angels, over death, and over yours and my sinful flesh. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This has been subject to many, many different interpretations over hundreds and thousands of years. But we're going to give it our best shot. We're going to give you three possible interpretations. First of all, some believe Peter here referred to the descent of Christ's spirit into Hades between his death and resurrection to offer people who lived before the flood a second chance to be saved. Well, there's no scriptural support for this idea, this interpretation at all. Hades is that temporary holding place for unbelievers until the time of God's great white throne judgment that's laid out in Revelation chapter 20. Believers go to heaven when they die. And we don't have time here, but you might recall that there's a theory among many that there's a thing called Abraham's bosom, a temporary place where people who are uh, uh, believers go and wait until Christ is resurrected. And it says in Ephesians 4.8 that he led captivity captive, that he supposedly went down to Abraham's bosom and brought those people out to the permanent place of heaven. And that's described, if you want to look at that, in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, when it's the rich man and the Lazarus. And then the picture of the rich man in hell talking to Lazarus and a great gulf that separates them. This is the idea of what Hades and Abraham's bosom possibly could be. Another interpretation, since there's no scriptural support to that first one, others have said this passage refers to Christ's descent into hell after his crucifixion to proclaim his victory to the imprisoned fallen angels referred to in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Now, we don't have the time here. I could spend a whole sermon, and tomorrow I will make a tape and put it on um, Facebook called Sermon Leftovers. It will give you more depth. But this goes back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, where it talks about the sons of men, or the sons of God were involved with the daughters of men and gave birth to children who were the Nephilim, who were the mighty men. And there's so much that we could unpack there to talk about. But the idea is that according to verse 18, Jesus was made alive by the Spirit, that his body was in the grave, but his eternal being of God never died and continued to live during this time. And he descended to hell to proclaim his victory over the imprisoned fallen angels. Though much commends this view as a possible interpretation, the context of this passage, if you look deeply at the context, and that's part of interpreting scripture, this is more likely referring to humans rather than angels. So the third view, and this is probably the view, this is the view I believe and probably the one that makes the most sense in the context here, is the pre-incarnate Christ was preaching through Noah for 120 years as Noah built the ark. You might remember that some believe that John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah preaching through him. Jesus could have come and spoken through Noah for those 120 years that he was building the ark to reach out to the people of that time. It says the spirits there in verse 20, a term usually applied to supernatural beings, but used at least once to talk about human spirits. And so... Noah, it says in, in, in Genesis 6, that God was patient with the people of their time, even though they were increasing in their wickedness. And he gave them 120 years to repent, 
to turn away from God's wrath, and they were threatened with the judgment of God. Since the entire human race except Noah was evil, God determined to wipe mankind from the face of the earth. The spirits referred to here in 1 Peter 3.20 are probably the souls of the evil human race that existed in the days of Noah. Those spirits are now in prison awaiting the final judgment of God at the end of the age. Now here's a problem though. The problem still remains when Christ preached to these spirits. Peter's explanation of the resurrection of Christ by the Spirit brought to mind that the pre-incarnate Christ was actually in Noah, as I said, ministering through him by means of the Holy Spirit. Peter is referred to in 1 Peter 1.11, the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets. So the Spirit of Christ could have been in Noah. Later, he described Noah as a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2.5. And the spirit of Christ preached through Noah to the ungodly humans who at the time of Peter's writing were spirits of prison waiting for their final judgment. This interpretation seems to fit the general theme of this section, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22. Keeping a good conscience in a time of unjust persecution. Noah is presented as an example of one who committed himself to a course of action for the sake of having a clear conscience before God, though it meant enduring harsh ridicule from the people all around him. Noah did not fear men, but obeyed God and proclaimed his message. Noah's reward for keeping a clear conscience in unjust suffering was a salvation of himself and his family who were saved through water being brought safely through the flood. A lot of these thoughts are taken from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, scholars from Dallas Theological Seminary who wrote this. To sum it up here, here's a quote, the spirit of Christ preached through Noah to the ungodly humans who at the time of Peter's writing were spirits in prison awaiting final judgment. That I believe is about as close as we can get to understanding what these verses 19 and 20 in 1 Peter 3 really mean. Well, as we see Jesus declaring his victory over death and now holds the keys to death and that Satan is merely God's unwilling servant, here are three things that we can take away as application from uh, verse 19 and part of verse 20. First of all, Christ's followers, we are to declare it. Jesus went out and proclaimed his victory. Christ followers are to declare, and one of the signs of a true disciple of Christ is a desire to share the gospel of Christ with other people. Proverbs 11.30 says in the King James, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. There should be a desire when you become a believer in Christ, when you are baptized into his spirit, to share with your family, your closest friends, on how you came to faith in Christ, and want them to know how to they can have a saving knowledge with a relationship with God the Father and to know that they have a place in heaven with their name on it because they know Jesus as their Savior. Another application here is that Christ followers are to apply it to their lives. You and I, we are to walk in that same victory, reminding ourselves often that we are the children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, as it says in Romans 8. And God gives us the power, the resources through the Holy Spirit, the resources through the church, godly mentors, accountability partners, for us to work on any sin in our lives. And I heard a new term this week, to make imperfect progress. 
in our becoming more like Christ. I like that. We may not ever completely, fully attain victory over a particular sin in our lives that's going to tempt us, it's going to come at us for the rest of our time on earth. But we can have imperfect progress, moving away, not being trapped by sin in our lives. And then Christ followers are to live our lives with the confidence of this message. We don't need to live in fear. The only fear we need to have is a reverential fear of the Lord. We've seen what human fear can do with this pandemic that's now moving to an endemic. It has caused even Christians to live in a fear, live in fear and be fearful of death. As I talked about earlier this month when I preached a message on the theology of death as believers, we know that death is coming. And while we don't want to hasten it, we don't need to fear it in our lives at all. So our application here is may we live our lives as conquerors over sin, over flesh, and over Satan as Jesus proclaimed it to those people um, through Noah's preaching at that time. A third point that provides for Christ followers to be blessed with a clear conscience is this. Christ planned to redeem Christ's followers in order to have a clear conscience. Christ had a plan. He wasn't surprised that the Jewish people rejected his message. He knew when he came to earth, he was going to the cross. He knew that eventually the gospel would go to the Gentiles, and then in the end times, Israel would come back. Christ planned to redeem Christ's followers in order to have a clear conscience. Look at 1 Peter 3. Verse 20, the second part of the verse, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Another tough little section here for us to uh, look at and unfold and try to understand in the context of all of Scripture as well as the context of 1 Peter. Peter gives us this challenging Scripture. Keep in mind that Peter is using Noah as a picture of the gospel here. Noah is considered first in Genesis chapter 6. That's where we begin to see his story. This idea of Noah being a picture of the gospel is known in theological terms as an antitype. What is an antitype? An antitype is like a parable. It's an earthly expression with a heavenly meaning. In other words, Noah is an example, like Joseph and like others. A picture of a deliverer pointing to what Christ would do in the future when he would fulfill salvation by dying on the cross. Noah preached for 120 years or so to repent, to avoid God's judgment and wrath that it was coming and it will be seen in full display as he drew, destroys the world and all the people around it. But they could turn away and trust in him and serve him. Noah in verse 20 brings his family into the ark for deliverance and salvation because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord according to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. Noah and his family rides above God's judgment and wrath on the disobedient people who are drowning below them in the water. Christ followers were saved by faith because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. 
So here is some of the ways that we can look and understand these verses. First of all, Christ followers are baptized into Christ at salvation. There's two types of baptism in the Bible. Baptism, the Greek word is baptizo. It means to immerse, to fully submerge underwater. But there's also this idea there that we are baptized and then dwelt by the Holy Spirit when we cross that line of faith, when we ask Christ to come into our hearts and our lives. Baptism here is a picture of escaping God's judgment and being united in Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, we're baptized or dwelt with the Holy Spirit at that moment. And it's, that's who transforms our hearts and gives us the new nature that's in tune with God's holiness and righteousness and makes us have the desire to be holy and to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, in our lives. An example of this is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Water in any form, water baptism in any form does not save you. Let me say that again. Water baptism in any form, sprinkling, I was sprinkled as an uh, infant in the Methodist church, poured, some people pour, even if you're fully immersed, if you do that, that's not necessarily, that's not going to save you. It's a picture of salvation. It corresponds here, baptism does, with the example of Noah, meaning he's an antitype, a picture of the gospel of salvation. It's the gospel that saves, not the water baptism. And think about this. When Jesus was on the cross and he had the one thief confessing his sin and asking for forgiveness, and what did Jesus say? Come off the cross and be baptized and I'll take you to paradise? No. He said, this day you will be with me in paradise. So in 1 Peter 3.20, it says, baptism, which corresponds to this, the gospel, now saves you. The gospel does, not as removal of dirt from the body. Notice the distinction in verse 20. It gives us the example of Noah being the antitype, a picture of the gospel of salvation. In 1 Peter 1.3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul lays out what the gospel is. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In verse 3, here's the gospel. This is the earliest creed that the Christians recited in the church. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And belief and repentance of sin on that gospel brings salvation. Ephesians 1, 7 describes it's the blood that saves us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Baptism doesn't save, but it's a picture, it's a symbol a public testimony before everyone assembled of what has happened inside in your heart and your life. Christ followers are reconciled with God at salvation. Christ followers are reconciled with God at salvation. Verse, 1 Peter 3.21. 
But as an appeal to God for a good conscience, baptism doesn't save us from sin, but saves us from a bad conscience. The word appeal there in the Greek means a pledge. An example of this is when someone gets into baptismal waters and shares their testimony of how they came to faith in Christ. That is their pledge or their appeal or sharing what decision they made in their life. It's a symbol of what has already occurred, baptism is, in the heart and the life of the one who has trusted Christ as Savior. And then Christ followers can rely on the resurrection power to overcome, to overcome sin. It's not enough to, to proclaim it. It's another to appropriate it to our lives. Do you realize that you and I, with the Holy Spirit living within us and that new nature, we have that same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead? The significance of the resurrection of Christ. Very important as we think about Easter just a few weeks away. First of all, by Jesus rising physically from the dead, which is the linchpin or, or everything rides on the fact that he did, it revealed that Jesus is God in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. The resurrection did. The resurrection of Christ points us to the true God. If you read Acts 2, 22 and 24, it talks about how God affirmed, placed a stamp of approval on Jesus' teaching, miracles, and all that he did by raising him up from the dead. And then Jesus points, because he says, it's not about me, it's the Father, he points to Jehovah Yahweh as the true God. The resurrection showed that the finished work of the cross was powerful enough to save anyone, and that you and I, we could be accepted by the Father. The resurrection points us to Jesus being the way for salvation. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As we've mentioned numerous times in this message, the resurrection of Christ gives us power over sin, over the flesh, over death, and Satan's influence in our lives. Here's our application. May we count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. It's an accounting term there in Romans 6. It talks about that we are to count ourselves dead, to render ourselves dead and live by faith in the power of the resurrection of Christ, to be alive in him. Very quickly and lastly, and I don't have time to deeply extrapolate this last verse, but we could spend considerable time on it. Christ's position of authority at the Father's right hand allows us to have a clear conscience. Christ's position of authority at the Father's right hand allows us to have a clear conscience. Look at the last verse of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. First of all, Christ is supreme over all authorities. Thursday morning when Vladimir Putin decided to attack Ukraine, God wasn't sitting there with a panic button next to the throne. He knew exactly what was going to happen because he sets up those in authority to rule and to reign. Notice the phrase in verse 22. He says, right hand. This means one who has prestige and power. Notice all authorities are subject to him. The word subject means to line up under in rank, in rank, in order. He is the supreme one and everything else is under him. 
and he ranks them as he desires. Christ receives his just reward and blessing of ascending to heaven to his rightful place next to his father. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Peter witnessed Jesus' ascension with his own eyes into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So as a result, the believers, as God sees us, were already seated in heavenly places. That's why I like Colossians 3, 2. Set your affections on things above, because we are already there as far as God is concerned. The only difference is the physical distance. And one day, that distance will be taken care of when we pass on from this life and we get our new body and we're there in our rightful place in heaven because of what Jesus did for us. Christ is exalted and he's over all things. I love the book of Colossians. It talks about the whole thing, the supremacy of Christ. Just a taste of it in Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And all is to bring honor and glory to Christ. As we sang earlier, he is worthy. He's worthy of all praise. Worthy of all honor, worthy of all majesty that we can attribute to him. And then we see Christ as the high priest, the blanks there, high priest, who is praying for the Christ followers. Do you realize that even today, right now, as we sit here, that Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and according to Romans 8.34, he is interceding and praying on your behalf. In 1 John 2, 1, he is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. When God looks at our sin, Jesus says, wait, God, I died. I paid the price for their sin. He's our defense attorney. He's our advocate. And in John 14, this is amazing. He is preparing a place for you and I, verses 1 through 6. He says, I go and prepare a place for you, and then I will come and take you to be with me. And he's putting your name on it as he is building it. And as you pass from this life, you will have a place of your own in heaven. Here's the application. May we go with confidence to the very throne of God with our prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplications. May we go with confidence. The curtain has been torn. We don't need a priest. We go directly to our high priest, Jesus Christ, because of the blood and because of what he did on the cross, that he gives us access, as it says in Ephesians. We get access to the Father. Our key thought today is this. May we be filled with gratitude for the work Christ did to reconcile us to God and provide for us the ability to have a clear conscience with God and man. This is why last week, when we went all through the benefits of a pure conscience, he's showing you here in these verses the work that it took all the effort that Christ and God did to make it possible so that you and I, we could have peace with God and the peace of God in our lives and live in confidence and victory as we go through our time here on earth. Summing up this several five verses of scripture, Warren Wiersbe says this, as Christians, we do not fight for victory, but from, from victory. 
the mighty victory that our Lord Jesus Christ won for us in his death, resurrection, and ascension. You and I, we are fighting in this world from a point of we've already won. We just have to continue to fight the battles and the skirmishes, but the victory is already won. I close with this verse in 2 Corinthians 2.14. Paul said, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us reveals the fragrance of the knowledge of him in every place. We already walk in triumph. And you know what that idea of the fragrant scent is? When Paul was writing this, when the Roman soldiers and the kings would go out and they would conquer their enemy, they would come back and they would have a parade in the capital. And all the people in the city, most of them would be there along the streets. And they would parade the prisoners, they would parade their spoils of everything that they got, and they would clap and cheer for victory. Well, guess what? Not everybody could be there for the parade. And so I'm told in the Roman times that they had these big bowls that were set up on pedestals throughout the major cities. And what they would do is they would, when these parades were about to occur and victory was to happen, they would light the incense and the fragrance, the smell would permeate the city. And even if you weren't at the parade, you know that there was victory. You know what this verse is saying is you and I, we are the fragrance of the victory as we go out, as we be the lights of Christ and the salt in this world. We're the fragrance of the triumph of Christ. May we rest in that, but also may we go out and live with that confidence. Let's bow for prayer. Do you have a sense of Christ's victory in your life? As we pray in just a moment, I hope like you that you can look back in hindsight and see how Christ has changed your life. I remember when I first got saved, the hunger for the word, the insatiable desire to tell other people like a beggar who had found food to bring others to the food, to come to know Christ, that the language got cleaned up, that the rebellious spirit began to change. As we think of past victories, may we dwell for a moment on what God may be touching your heart to ask you to work on to take this resurrection power and help you to gain victory in another area of your life today. You see, as Christians, as we get older in our faith, we get more set in our ways. But God wants us to deal with all the areas of sin in our life. Maybe God's pinpointing in you today an area that you need to claim victory and to do what you need to do to begin to walk in that attitude of victory, to be a fragrant offering of Christ in a new way in your world today. Father, we thank you for this powerful set of scriptures. There's so much to unpack. We could preach two more sermons on this altogether, but Lord, we just thank you for the truths that are given. And even in those difficult verses that are hard to understand, may we gain application. May we try to glean the interpretation for our lives as to what the meaning is so that we can go out and proclaim the victory that Christ has already given to us through the resurrection by rising again from the dead. 
I pray for the areas of our life that we need to commit to you, areas that we need to take one step at a time, maybe one sin at a time and work and work through this imperfect progress to put it under the blood and to gain victory for it as we become more and more like the image of Christ. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.